Check, check, check. Essays in Idleness. Essays in Idleness. From approximately 1330 to 1332, a poet by the name of Yoshida Kenko set himself to the task of writing with no particular purpose or goal. Over the course of two years, he wrote over 243 short essays on topics ranging from 14th century etiquette, codes of romantic conduct, the beauty of nature, etc. The writings consistently reflect on the nature of impermanence, a concept we later come to know as wabi-sabi, one of Japan's most powerful permeating exports. This book is required reading for anyone in the Japanese high school program and is considered one of the three masterworks of the Zuihitsu style, loosely translated to mean following the brush or the will of the brush. I'll read from the back of the book, translated by Donald Keane. Essays in Idleness has been a central work in the development of Japanese taste, though Kenko's argument often consists merely of a brief statement of perceptions he succeeded in defining with great sensitivity the aesthetic preferences that have been true of Japan ever since. Over the course of this program, I will recite from the 243 passages of Essays in Idleness. Simultaneously, I will be teaching myself how to perform voiceover and attempt to understand the history and social conditions surrounding Kenko's life and the resulting aftermath historically for the Japanese people, the Japanese identity, and the image of Japan to the outside world. This piece is intended to be listened to as a piece of furniture. I will read from Kenko's writing, often deviating from the text and switching translations. I will quote from other writing without attribution. I will give both accurate and inaccurate historical information colored by my own subjectivity as I click through Wikipedia pages. And I will most certainly repeat or contradict myself as Kenko does in his own writing. Essays in Idleness, Donald Keene Translation. What a strange, demented feeling it gives me when I realize I've spent whole days before this inkstone with nothing better to do, jotting down at random whatever nonsensical thoughts have entered my head. One. It is enough, it would seem, to have been born into this world for a man to desire many things. The position of the emperor, of course, is far too exalted for our aspirations. Even the remote descendants of the imperial line are sacred, for they are not of the seed of man. 
ordinary nobles of a rank that entitles them to retainers, let alone those who stand in the solitary grandeur of the chancellor, appear most impressive. And even their children and grandchildren, though their fortunes may decline, still possess a distinctive elegance. Persons of lower rank, fortunate enough to achieve some success in keeping with their station, are apt to wear looks of self-satisfaction and no doubt consider themselves most important. But actually, they're quite insignificant. No one is less to be envied than a priest. Say Shonagon wrote of priests that they seem to outsiders like sticks of wood. An apt description. The clerics impress nobody, even when they flaunt their authority and their importance is loudly proclaimed. It is easy to see why the holy man Solga should have said that worldly fame is unseemly in priests, and that those who seek it violate the teachings of Buddha. A true hermit might in fact be more admirable. It is desirable that a man's face and figure be of excelling beauty. I could sit forever with a man, provided that what he said did not grate on my ears and that he had charm and that he did not talk very much. What an unpleasant experience it is when someone you are supposed to be quite distinguished reveals his true inferior nature. A man's social position and looks are likely to be determined at birth, but why should not a man's mind go from wisdom to greater wisdom if it is so disposed? What a shame it is when men of excellent appearance and character prove hopelessly inept in social encounters with their inferiors in both position and appearance, solely because they are badly educated. A familiarity with orthodox scholarship, the ability to compose poetry and prose in Chinese, a knowledge of Japanese poetry and music are all desirable. And if a man can serve as a model to others in matters of precedent and court ceremony, he's truly impressive. The mark of an excellent man is that he writes easily in an acceptable hand, sings agreeably and in tune, and though appearing reluctant to accept when wine is pressed on him, is not a teetotaler. The man who forgets the wise principles of the reigns of the ancient emperors, who gives no thought to the grievances of the people or the harm done to the country, who strives for the utmost luxury in everything, imagining that this is the sign of magnificence, who acts as if the world were too small for him, seems deplorably wanting in intelligence. You'll find in Lord Cujo's testament the instruction, Make do with what you have from your court costume down to your horses and carriages. Do not strive for elegance. Again, you will find among the writings of the retired Emperor Juntoku in court ceremonial, the clothes worn by the emperor should be simple and unassuming. 3. A man may excel at everything else, but if he has no taste for lovemaking, one feels something terribly inadequate about him, as if he were a valuable wine cup without a bottom. What a charming figure is the lover, his clothes drenched with dew or frost, wandering about aimlessly, so fearful of his parents' reproaches or people's gossip, that he has not a moment's peace of mind. 
frantically resorting to one unsuccessful stratagem after another. And for all that, most often sleeping alone, though never soundly. But it is best that a man not be given over completely to fleshly pleasures, and that women not consider him an easy conquest. Four. It is admirable when a man keeps his thoughts constantly on the future life and is not remiss in his devotions to the way of the Buddha. Five. It is better for a man sunken in grief over misfortunes to shut his gate and live in seclusion so quietly, awaiting nothing, that people cannot tell whether or not he is at home. Rather than that, he hastily decide to shave his head and become a priest. Akimoto, the middle counselor, once spoke of wishing to see the moon of exile, though guilty of no crime. It is easy to imagine why he felt so. Six. Even members of the nobility, let alone persons of no consequence, would do well not to have children. Prince Kaneakira, Fujiwara no Konimichi, and Minamoto no Arihito all desire that their line end with themselves. Fujiwara no Yoshifutsa, according to the account in Okagami, was of the same opinion. He wrote, You would best not have descendants. How unfortunate it would be if they proved inferior to yourself. They say that when Prince Shotoku had a tomb built for himself before his death, he ordered the workmen to cut here and trim there. I wish for no descendants. Seven. If a man were never to fade away like the dews of Arashino, never to vanish like the smoke over Toribeyama, but lingered on forever in the world, how things would lose their power to move us. The most precious thing in life is its uncertainty. Consider living creatures. None live so long as man. The mayfly waits not for the evening. The summer cicada knows neither spring nor autumn. What a wonderfully unhurried feeling it is to live even a single year. A single year in perfect serenity. If that is not enough for you, you might live a thousand years and still feel it was a single night's dream. We cannot live forever in this world. Why should we wait for ugliness to overtake us? The longer man lives, the more shame he endures. To die at the latest before one reaches 40 is the least unattractive. The least unattractive. Once a man passes that age, he desires with no sense of shame over his appearance to mingle in the company of others. And as sunset years, he dotes on his grandchildren and prays for long life so he may see them prosper. 
His preoccupation with worldly desires grows ever deeper and gradually he loses all sensitivity to the beauty of things. A lamentable state of affairs. Eight. Nothing leads a man astray so easily as sexual desire. What a foolish thing a man's heart is that we realize, for example, that fragrances are short-lived and a scent burned into glows lingers but briefly. How our hearts always leap when we catch a whiff of an exquisite perfume. The holy man of Kume lost his magic powers after noticing the whiteness of the legs of a girl who was washing clothes. This is quite understandable considering that the glowing plumpness of her arms, legs, and flesh owed nothing to artifice. He could fly through the air. Nine. Beautiful hair, of all things in a woman, is most likely to catch a man's eye. Her character and temperament may be guessed from the first word she utters, even if she is hidden behind a screen. And when a woman somehow, perhaps unintentionally, has captured a man's heart, she is generally unable to sleep peacefully. She will not hesitate to subject herself to hardships and will even endure, cheerfully, what she would normally find intolerable. All because love seems, all because love means so much to her. The love of men and women is truly a deep-seated passion with distant roots. The senses give rise to many desires, but it should be possible to shun them all. Only one, infatuation, is impossible to control. Old or young, wise or foolish, in this respect all seem identical. That is why they say that even a great elephant can be fastened securely with a rope plaited from the strands of a woman's hair, and that a flute made from a sandal a woman has worn will infallibly summon the autumn deer. We must guard against this delusion of the senses, which is to be dreaded and avoided. <laughs> 